Welcome to the Exponential Podcast, part of a library of thousands of multiplication resources. This library of resources is designed to help you accelerate multiplication in your church and community. Our mission is to equip you as a movement maker with actionable principles, ideas, and solutions with some of today's top leaders. This episode was part of Exponential's online community at multiplication.org. Visit multiplication.org to join the free community and interact with other leaders. All right. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of the Candid Conversations. Uh, My name is Todd Wilson. I'm the CEO of Exponential, and I am thrilled today. uh, My co-host, Grant Skelton, is joining me, and our special guest, Miles McPherson. Um, Grant Skelton, uh, this is our first time together hosting, and uh, Grant's out of Dallas, Texas. I've had just the pleasure of getting to know Grant the last couple of years. Um, Grant... uh, seeks to serve uh, a very dynamic uh, group of diverse young leaders across the country. He does that through an organization he founded called Initiative Network. Uh, They do just various ways of serving young emerging leaders. Uh, Grant's the author of the book, Passion Generation. And so, uh, Grant, glad you're with us. Tell us just briefly a little bit more about, you know, the ministry that you've got. Yeah, I uh, basically, one, Todd, thank you for having me uh, co-host this with you. And just uh, honored to also be uh, an exponential associate with Exponential. A little bit about me is, honestly, I just have a huge heart to, I would say, the phrase disrupt the vision. Um, I especially want to disrupt the vision in the next generation of Christian leaders. And so, uh, honestly, I, I found a trend of, if you ever think about racial reconciliation movies that have been made, they often are, I don't think people think about this, but they're often sports movies. They're, remember the Titans, Glory Road, the movie Race on Jesse Owens, 42 on Jackie Robinson. Um, there's often these movies uh, on the blind side, even. It's like where two different types of people have to work together because they care about accomplishing something and that passion to accomplish something. And what I love about it is it's not, I just haven't seen many racial reconciliation movies where they had a conference and everything was fixed. It's usually, or they did a racial reconciliation panel. Um, what I realized was they often had to work together for a long period of time. Even when they butted heads, they eventually had to come back and really want to uh, accomplish that vision together. And there was breakthrough. And so I say all that to say how I feel called to unite the next generation of Christian leaders is I love taking them on retreats. I love getting them away. I love taking them out of our element for several days and really uniting them around a cause. And that cause is that most of our generation is walking away from the faith. And I've seen God do incredible things in bringing us together. But you know, Grant, that that idea of having to roll up your sleeves and get into a relationship with people and work at something rather than just attending a conference or reading a book, that really highlights the need for this conversation we're going to have today, which is sort of the rules for civil conversations. Like, how do we actually engage in conversations that will draw people in and allow us to even have that relationship? So yeah. often, you know, it just seems like we're living in one of the most divided times in our, in our nation's history. We're arguing over whether to wear face masks or not, and soon we're going to argue over whether you take a vaccine or not. And it's like, everything's arguable at this at this point so uh you know what we're going to try to do today is really engage in what does it look like to have civil conversations uh not just who can yell the loudest and get their point across but how do we listen learn and work together and so i couldn't be more happy that we've got miles mcpherson with us today i've enjoyed getting to know miles um, he's got uh, a recent book out, The Third Option, uh, that just so nicely fits in with what we're doing. Uh, Miles, it's great to have you today. We're uh, glad you're with us. Great to be here, and thanks for being courageous and taking on this topic. I, I think it's the right thing to do, but I know it's been challenging, so congratulations and I'm proud of you guys to do that. Well, thank you. Uh, Miles and his wife are the founders of The Rock Church in Southern California. Uh, founded in 2000. Uh, Miles had a radical transformation to come to know Jesus while he was in the NFL, and uh, of all things, leaving the NFL to uh, start a church, which is a interesting journey in itself. But the Rock Church is seven locations, 30,000 people. Uh, Miles is a dynamic speaker, author, uh, leader, and just with really a, a reconciliation tone and voice that's uh, I can't think of many better people that we could possibly have on for this conversation. So 
Uh, Grant, why don't you jump in with us here? Yeah, so Miles, uh, we got to talk a little bit beforehand, but ironically, I was given your book uh, by a mutual friend of ours, uh, not knowing that months later I'd get to interview you. And it, sincerely, I do think this book, y'all, uh, Third Option, even the subtitle, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. And unfortunately, I mean, who would have known the year would become what it's become since you wrote the book, that there wouldn't be even more of a need to have these conversations. But uh, part of the question I wanted to ask is like, yeah, why did you write this book? Uh, we all know that when you decide to write a book, it's not, I think it's glorified, but it is is—it is an undertaking. It is a year to two commitment. Um, and so you really have to pray through, am I going to do this? There's been many books uh, written on this, but so what would you say and why you wrote it? And what do you feel like for the, the person who there's a growing audience that's looking for content, looking for resources, uh, uh, what kind of differentiates this book from others so that uh, people know, hey, if I'm in this camp, I'm looking for exactly this kind of book. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I'll tell you, when I was eight years old, uh, Martin Luther King was killed, and I remember, I remember what I felt, how unfair it was, because I lived in a black neighborhood, went to school in a white neighborhood, and I have a white grandmother, half Chinese black grandmother, black grandfather, so I had United Nations family, but I lived in a segregated world. And mm -hmm. so I was faced with racism every day like all of us were. And when Martin Luther King was killed, I, I remember feeling, you know, thinking, what do we do? And I thought that all my life. And when the opportunity gave me to write a book, they asked me to write a book on racism. And, and that's, you know, fast forward all these years of seeing all the division in our country. Um, and so, I, but I wrote it to give people tools. Uh, in our culture, we, we live in an us versus them culture. You're either for or against Black Lives Matter. You're for or against defunding the police, you're the Republican or Democrat. And the division is, is defined as us versus them. And that is the conversation everybody's in. And it's like, what side are you on? And once you pick a side, you are the enemy of the other side. And if you or pick one side or one point of view, you become a sellout if you agree with the other side. Uh, the third option, which is what the book's all about, is that we honor what we have in common. Instead of being on this side and this side, there's a prophetic position. These are activist positions, and they're not necessarily bad, but God has called us to be prophetic. And because we're all made in the image of God, the book and the perspective, the third option perspective, starts with that we are the same, not we are the di we are different. And if we start with a baseline that we are the same, made in the image of God, we all like to bleed, we bleed red, we like our food, our sleep, and we begin with unity, and then look at our differences and our unique uniqueness as added benefit. Um, we could all get along. So the book was designed to give people tools on how to build bridges, how to acknowledge blind spots, how to have conversations. And then it has a, a, now an e-course that you can go through six small group lessons with video and teaching and role plays and homework to actually work out these lessons in the book. And actually, and I, and actually, I piloted the e-course with the police here in San Diego wow. and asked them after, was it, you know, we asked them, was it the best training you ever had and, and they were like it caused us to look at our heart so it, this book is designed to empower people to actually build bridges and not necessarily win an argument yeah this is powerful i i what i appreciate about the book is there are educational books on race and and i think for us right now is uh you can learn a lot but maybe not know how do i functionally apply this to my relationships um and i feel like you get very practical steps of like how do you basically love your neighbor mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And there's all kinds of issues that, you know, blind spots, bias, privilege, all these things that I break down from a biblical perspective and, and say, let's walk this journey and help us understand what we don't understand about our, ourselves. Yeah. Miles, let me ask, playing off of something you just said, that, you know, this idea that we're for this, we're against this, we're for this, we're against this. Um, give us your take you know, it on one end of the spectrum, if activists only could speak through the lens of what they're for rather than what they're against, would we be better off or not, would be my question. Like, how important is the what I'm against part as opposed to focusing on what I'm for, if that makes sense? Um, yeah, I think the church, if we're talking about the church, we yeah. need to be prophetic. And we need to lift people up to, and focus on what we're for. Uh, the world, I, I, I take it back. Let me, let me give you, as we talk about conversations, yeah. 
when you have a conversation with somebody, uh, I was asking somebody if an alligator and a bear had a fight, who would win? And the question is, the answer is, it depends on where they fight. If they fight in the water, the alligator wins. If they fight on land, the bear wins. And so if we as the church, and we're supposed to build the kingdom of God, if we, if we get in the water and try to win a us versus them argument in all our discussions, we lose. Because it, it, it's a, it's a, God has not called us to win arguments. He's called us to win relationships. And so instead of being in the water and trying to win arguments as activists, here, are, here are, the, are my activists that I follow. Here's the arguments, points I follow, versus fighting on the land and saying, I want to win a relationship. And instead of me proving how right I can be, I'm going to prove how much I can love people who don't agree with me. And if that is our posture from the beginning, that you are made in the image of God, I'm made in the image of God, whenever I go into a conversation, I have to start there that we have more in common, and I'm not here to prove myself right and yourself wrong, and I'm, I'm here to say we are more in common than, uh, than we know. Let's seek common ground and grow from there. All right. Well, I'd like how, to ask, go ahead, go, ahead, go ahead, Grant, you go ahead. I wanted to ask you yeah, just a pretty simple question, but um, how, do you, how often do you feel like race conversations happen? And how do you even think that has changed um, even over the last 10, 20 years? Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I, I, whenever you have a discussion, whether you're witnessing or any discussion about anything, even if you're talking with your wife, probably the most important thing to do is to be in agreement on what words mean. And so when you say have a race conversation, what does that even mean? And, and I'll start with this. If you go to school and your math teacher is lecturing about calculus, I have four years of calculus, or geometry, or English, you go to the class to learn from the teacher. And you could sit there all day and not say anything. And if you do talk, you're probably just getting clarification of what the teacher's telling you. That's not a conversation. That's a lecture. Conversation yeah. when you have dialogue with two people and sharing ideas. And so if you're going to have a race conversation, you are entering into a dialogue situation with somebody. Now, how often does that happen? Every single time you look in the mirror. Because we see color, and I talk about this in a book, you should not say you don't see color because you do. Because the only time people say they don't see color is when they see it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's kind of ludicrous, and it's offensive to the people of color. Uh, and it also makes the assumption that white's not a color, which it is. But that's a whole other discussion. I want to stay on yeah. topic. Because you do see color, when you look in the mirror, you know you're talking to whatever you are. Whenever you talk to somebody in your family, you know what you're talking. You, you know who you're talking to, whether they're white, black, Asian. When you go buy hair, hair products, you look on the thing, you look with the color of the guy in the hair to see, is that my, is that going to treat my hair? So you have raised conversations every time you see a person in your head, you have a conversation. And so you need to know that with that conversation in your head comes assumptions. And those assumptions make, are going to come out in your behavior. So it happens every single time you inter, 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 interact with a person. I would tell you to have to go beyond, to listen to the conversation in your head and listen to the assumptions you're making in your head before you make those assumptions come out with your words. So acknowledge that you have it all the time. I was, I, when I got drafted to the Los Angeles Rams, which was my, was my original team, I was walking to the gate in Vegas and there was this guy, my complexion, my height, 100 pounds bigger than me. And I'm thinking, is this guy Puerto Rican? Cause I'm from New York and light-skinned dudes are Puerto Rican. Yeah. Is he, and he, and, and I, but he just didn't look Puerto Rican. And I'm having this conversation in my head trying to figure out what he was. And I finally asked him, I said, yo, man, where are you from? And he, he was from Samoa. I never met a Samoan. Yeah. But I was having that conversation in my head. And that's not a bad thing. It's just plain, simple logic. So we have to realize that it, it starts here every time you encounter any person, even in your family. So, Miles, you're describing an intentionality there, an awareness and an intentionality. Let's assume for a minute people were being intentional. When you go into those conversations, what, um, what's the number one goal or what do we need to be thinking about in terms of goals and motivations in those conversations? Yeah, if it's a conversation where we're going to talk about racism um, and, and we're going to try to vet this out, as a believer, your, your goal has to be love. It cannot be to win an argument. If your goal is to win an argument that, that you're, you're in the water fighting an us first them battle, that's the world. 
But if your goal is to uh, is to is to expand the kingdom of God, your goal has to be love, based on what Jesus said. You can't love God who you can't see, and love man who you don't see. And 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 you have to love people who don't agree with you because <laughs> Matthew five forty three and forty five says, "Love your enemy, those who hate you." And if all you needed was a disagreement to have an excuse not to love somebody, all the devil has to do is create a disagreement. I mean, and he wins the he wins the whole the whole the whole game. So your goal has to be to love, and to love you have to listen. The love you have to learn, and to love you have to admit that you don't know everything. <laughs> and so when you go into these conversations, you have to say, okay, what is my goal? My goal is to win a relationship exchange ideas, learn and grow, and and learn how to love people better. When someone told me they didn't see my color, that wasn't loving to me. What was what I heard, doesn't matter what they communicated, what I heard was you are not significant. What you are and the burden that came with that doesn't it's not important to me. I don't want to acknowledge it. And so for them to be loving would be to say, to hear my perspective on that and go oh i didn't know that so let's let's have a conversation we're exchanging ideas so we're going to love each other and by the way i have to love them by saying it lovingly right but we're going to have a conversation and learn from each other so we have to walk into it with this idea that i want to love somebody that has to stay front and center of every conversation uh, Miles, what would you say is the difference between uh, conversation and a consultation? <laughs> and and I would say even since this book, man, I've, I've realized uh, a growing weariness from, ironically, I probably have never seen as many people as uh, desiring. There's a growing number of people desiring conversation and desiring even consultation, if you will. Uh, but also a weariness of, man, I'm, I'm tired. I'm always having to do this. Um, uh, how do you speak light into, into that? Yeah, uh, and when you say I'm always having to do this, who are those people? Usually the black community. I mean, okay. it, I mean, there, there's a rise of uh, predominantly yeah. white uh, people um, asking for, man, what book should I read? I mean, I can't tell you how many times. It's like, hey, dude, here's the post. Like, look, look, this post gives the 10, 20 books. Or, hey, what should I know? Even my, my black friends, when I invite them into these diverse conversations, some are like, Hey, I'm tired of being the guy that always educate. Um, yeah. And so where, how do we, yeah, how do we deal with um, trying to still lead to healing, but acknowledging, hey, this is hard to repeat this over and over and over again. Yeah. The, the, one of the things that people of color, and one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that all our lives we would explain things that are racist or, or offensive. Yeah. And people will say, I'm not a racist. And you can be racially offensive without being a racist. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear people say, I'm tired of talking, uh, being the teacher, I get that because a lot of times it's not a, when, when people of color try to explain things because there's a defensiveness from many whites who don't want to admit that this something is offensive because they believe or think that if something is offensive, that means they're racist. And those conversations end up going over. So it's like talking to a, a brick wall. That is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, so that is, that is a very true thing. And, and, and you know, right now where there are people who are more uh, open to talking, uh, that's a great thing and very encouraging. Miles, I, I want to um, paint a, just a picture for this next question. Let's say you and I are wanting to engage in a conversation on race topics. And you're kind of it. You're on one side of the yard, and I'm on the other side. And between us are all these landmines. When we when we started down this path of doing candid conversations, we started with a list of topics we might want to talk about. We got to like 25, and we realized just how loaded and device just the words themselves. So let's let's just have this picture that you and I are on opposite ends of the yard. We need to have this conversation. And between us are 25 landmines that just the words that are out there can keep us from having a conversation. So what are the principles? What are the prevailing principles that help us get past the loadedness of the words Black Lives Matter and white supremacy and all of the, the different things? What guiding principles should shape how we engage together? Yeah, I think um, 
first, you and I have to agree. Are you a believer and do you believe that we're made in the image of God? Do you believe that we're more similar? Do you believe that I am as valuable in the eyes of God as you are? Do you believe I have the same rights that you have? Do we agree on the definitions of the landmines? And I think a lot, um, a lot comes out with that. You know, my son was, is a cop. My dad was a cop. And there's a lot of argument about the police. Okay, let's, let's agree about the police. Do we agree that we need police, that when we call 911, we want someone to answer the phone? <laughs> Do we agree on that? <laughs> Do we agree that we want good police? Do we agree that blacks have a different experience with police than whites? And I think just having, answer, asking those questions to lay the groundwork of what we believe and why before we start telling people what they should believe. And I think having a very respectful, honorable dialogue to get that on the table with the commitment that I'm going to love you and learn from you. Because if you say, I don't believe this, but I believe this, okay, let's talk about why. Help me understand your perspective instead of attacking you because I've already determined you're wrong. So I think getting that on the table, the, the book, The Third Option, is based on the premise that we're more similar than different. And so if I agree, if we both agree that we are both made in the image of God and we deserve the same rights and we, should, we deserve the same opportunities uh, um, and that you want what I want and that I want what you want, if we can start there and we're both committed to loving each other, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that foundation. Too often people go into conversations like what you're just talking about saying, you know, I'm not getting blown up and, I, and I'm not going to agree with you. And, and, you, and you're never going to come uh, come together. Let me just as a follow on to that real quick. Um, so oft, I'll say this for myself. So often the conversation that I'm finding myself getting into is not about the definitions. But yet the entry point, the other person has an idea of the definition. I have an idea of the definition. And, and often the words are so loaded it's like going in and getting a tooth extracted without Novocaine kind of thing. The word itself can be a lightning bolt. So I love what you're saying, but what happens when the two of us are wanting to have a conversation on something and we don't even realize yet that we have different definitions? So how does this idea of getting in sync on the definitions, how does that even fit into the, the question? Because we're, we're not even to a point yet of knowing we have differing opinions or anything else. We're possibly each speaking different language on definitions. Yeah, a couple of things. Why are you having the conversation in the first place? I mean, so in other words, if you're on the other yard, how do we start that conversation? Hey, let's talk about racism. You know, let me prove you wrong. So at some point, if you're going to have a conversation about it, which is a very intentional thing, I mean, people usually don't stumble into it. Uh, one of the things you can do every time you can have this premise that, I love you, you're made in the image of God. There are gonna be some things we're gonna talk about uh, that are volatile. Let's make sure that we're agreeing on what they mean. Now, you don't have to go through the whole list, but if, if you say, let's talk about defunding the police, what does that mean to you? What about bias? What does that mean to you? And so you, you can always, I mean, this is true when you talk about with your wife. I mean, your wife will say, you're not listening to me. You know, stop. When, let's talk about what that means, <laughs> and 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 how can I how can I do that better? It applies to every conversation that we have. So I think if you're going to have this conversation, which is very in a very intentional thing to do, whenever you have topics come up, just make sure what do you what is your definition of that, and why do you believe what that? Why do you believe that? And help me understand your experience. And let me show you my experience. How do you, uh, when you run into, and this is something we're all dealing with so much in our nation, is when you are having conversations with people that you just drastically, drastically disagree with, how do you compassionately and respectively go into those conversations? You know, I, I go back to the same premise. If you disagree with me, and, I, and, I, and I, maybe I'll give you an illustration. I, I had a, a conversation with a white supremacist, <laughs> okay? What's the purpose of the conversation? Am I going to convince this guy? A matter of fact, I, I, I did, I was talking, um, I interviewed a former white supremacist at church one Sunday, and he invited his current white supremacist friends, and they came. So we went in the back, uh, into my green room, I invited them back. 
I think there was four of them, or two girls, two guys. And what's the purpose? Am I going to try to convince them? No, I'm going to love them. So my, my conversation is, I'm just going to love them. I'm not going to try to talk about race. I just want to talk about love. So when they leave that room, they go, huh. I, the, here's the question they're going to have in their head. Maybe black people aren't what I thought. That's the goal. The goal is not for me to check, check, check. I won this. And so if they leave going, hey, matter of fact, they were saying, can we take a picture together? And they were bugging me. But they <laughs> can you send me the picture? Can you send me the picture? So here's these white supremacists leaving my green room, asking me for the picture we took together. That's the goal is the relationship. So that you have to always come at it from what is the goal. But too often the conversations that everyone's scared of is I have to win an argument. That is like the worst premise in the world. That's, that's talking in the water, us versus them. But if I have to love you and be humble enough to, to not have to win an argument, we can go a long way. We can get along. A quick follow-up, uh, not, maybe not on this specifically, but just this whole conversation. Maybe through a next-gen lens, I'm always thinking for the younger leaders. Um, so I, I saw a study recently that said that 48% of Gen Z are non-Caucasian. Uh, but it said non for baby boom non-Caucasian. Okay. Non-white. Um, and while 18% of baby boomers when they were teenagers were non-Caucasian. And so like it's drastically more diverse world that the next generation, especially Gen Z is growing up in. And one thing I, I loved about your book is I'm, I'm actually half Mexican and then I'm half so South African. So it's very ironic, weird uh, mix of my dad, South African, my mom, Mexican, but my mom didn't really engage in so when I'm reading you as a biracial person, kind of talking about your uh, journey, I'm like connecting a lot. But then uh, I was like, I wonder if you're going to talk about, not just that I don't have the same, I always felt the same struggles. I don't ever feel Mexican enough for my Mexican family or friends. And I never feel white enough for white friends and family. Uh, but worse than that was not even just the color. It was the culture. Like my mom didn't have us grow up in Mexican culture too much. And my dad barely brought us ever to South Africa. Um, and so with the next generation, I just think how many young people are going to be biracial more than probably ever before in American history is like, how, how does this conversation really impact the next generation? How important is it? And have you even seen, uh, yeah, just uh, when you're speaking to young leaders, what, what would be your word of advice to generations uh, coming up that are really leading this area? I think to, to give her, and what I mean by honor is place high value on what we have in common. That everybody we meet is, is, is created in the image of God and designed to have a relationship with God and respond to the love of God. And if we just keep that as the focus, we can enjoy uh, different cultures which are man-made. And, and they're fine, but they're man-made. You know, we're citizens of heaven. So when we go to when we go to heaven, it's not going to be a quinceanera in heaven, right? It's going to be a whole different level of, of celebration. I was in I was in a, in a prison speaking, and right after I spoke, I went up to a white supremacist, different different situation, and we were talking, and he and I are ninety nine point five percent genetically the same. And so my, my, and I didn't know that at the time, but my focus to talk to people is not what we, how we are different, but to give value. And because I, but I, what I did know was that he was made in the image of God. And so when I spoke to him about Jesus, whether he hates this in his mind, his heart is designed to receive the, the, uh, this, the word of God and respond to it. And so if for the next generation, which I think they're, they're so far ahead of us on this because they're so accepting to see God in everybody and how can I love people and learn from people and, and gain knowledge and experience. I did a wedding for an African-American guy and an Ethiopian woman. And it was three days. And, <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you something. It was a thousand people at the wedding of 500 wow. Americans and about 500 Ethiopians. And the wedding party was 14 couples. It was awesome. And they were, when we walked out, Usually in our culture, it's quiet. I mean, everybody's scared to death. People faint. They get so nervous just from walking down the aisle. But we walked out at this wedding. The Ethiopians were screaming, partying. It was a whole different culture. And I'm thinking, now, this is the kind of wedding I want to have. And it was three days. What's the point? The point is that 
for me to say my culture has to be over that culture versus saying, man, I want to learn what I, we can add. And if we learn from people that are different than us, we can enrich our lives. Keeping in fact, everybody's made the image of God and God has created his creativity in all of us. Thank you, man. So Miles, um, it, this idea of being intentional and the whole idea of making sure we're using the same definitions for a minute when we're getting into conversation, is it appropriate, does it help the conversation? Let's say, just a minute ago, you referred to white supremacists and what you were talking about. Is it appropriate when you and I are in a conversation for me to say, hey, Miles, before we move on, can you clarify for me or define for me what you mean by white supremacists? Is it okay to go back to that simplicity when we're in a conversation where, because I, I think especially, I'll, I'll say as a white leader, I'm guessing you could have 10 different people write down their definition of a white supremacist. When you say the word, you know, there's a tendency for white leaders to get, but we might not even be thinking the same definition when you use the word. So is it, is it going to be interpreted as a defensive thing if someone like me asks the question, hey, can you clarify what you mean by that word or not? You know, all this, again, what is the goal? The goal is for us believers to build the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is a community of believers who love each other. In relationship, God creates relationship. I'm kind of going back to the beginning, but I always want to keep going back there because if you and I are in relationship, you can ask me anything you want. <laughs> right and so that has to be but if but but if if we have a contentious relationship we don't have this conversation right Just don't even have it and and however because you are white and i am not we're having a conversation by talking because i see a white guy you see a brown guy that that's a that's a race conversation and, and here's what happens when you and, and, and let me go back to the I would tell you a story, but don't let me forget to answer your question uh, in another way. Whenever you have, when you talk to somebody and you see that they're Asian or whatever, you have assumptions in your head. They, they're instant. You can't stop it. That's not bad. The, the bad thing is when you take those assumptions and apply them as fact. When you have a race consultation, you allow people to self-disclose to you what they are, who they are. So we have to be, give people time to self-disclose to, to, to ourselves. Uh, to each other. So getting back to your, your answer, I mean, your question, if we're having this conversation, the goal is relationship. Let's agree that we are educating each other because that's why we're having this conversation. When someone self-discloses to you, what you thought about them is either going to be reinforced or expanded. You're never going to stay the same. In other words, if I talk to a white guy and and you are the, uh, what I've always experienced in a white guy, my belief about a white guy that looks like you is going to be reinforced. But if you're different, it's going to be expanded. And so that's a learning process. And, and so when you tell, when we say white supremacy, I met, I met a white guy, he's 25 years old, he kind of, you know, young athletic dude, and his name was DeAndre. <laughs> so he expanded my idea of, a, and he's from Iowa, right? And so whenever you meet somebody, what you're learning about people is being expanded. So when you and I talk and you say to me, hey, what is white supremacy? Let's have a conversation. Because I'm sure it, it, our definitions may be different, but that's an opportunity to learn and grow what do you think are like the the main admissions then we need to make when we go into these types of conversations yeah in my book um i the the foundation of my book the third option is that we're all in different groups men are a group women are a group and in your um group you you understand the people in your group like i'm a pastor so i understand pastors really well i don't understand the lawyer world because i'm not a lawyer and 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 because we understand the people who are like us this um you understand the variations of people who are like you uh, it it creates blind spots about everybody else so i know football players i don't know hockey players so i have to admit that people who are not in my group and i'm in multiple groups I don't know the variations. I have blind spots. So when you go into a conversation, you have to admit, I have blind spots. I don't know my, my out group. White is an out group 
to me. Asian is an outgroup to me, even though my grandmother's half Chinese, but that culture is an outgroup to me. So I have to go into a conversation going, I'm coming into the conversation with a blind spot or a bias, which means I just have a, I, I have a slant to my understanding because of what I've learned. You can't come into the conversation saying, I know everything and my view is right. That's the worst thing. That's called pride. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But if you go into it saying, I want to win a relationship, I want to love, I have to do those things. The person made the image of God. They want to be respected just like me. And I'm not here to win an argument. I'm here to learn. You know, be quick, quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to learn. And so um, uh, if I go there, then I'm on solid ground. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple words I feel like that trigger people a lot when they enter into these conversations. And one of them, of course, it could be the word racist. But one word that comes up a lot, too, that can sometimes trigger people is the word privilege. And I once got to hear you share on privilege, specifically like right privilege. And that was so helpful, I think, and disarming in the way it, you kind of explain that for anyone who maybe struggles with what privilege could look like. Would you mind sharing a little bit yeah. with that? And I'll try to do it efficiently. When you go to school as a kid, the desk is on your right side because the world was made by right-handed people for right-handed people. Wasn't necessarily malicious. You're right. I'm left-handed. So I'm, my elbow doesn't rest on anything when I'm right at my desk growing up. I can't go and get a golf club, a left-handed golf club at any golf shop. Can't get a left-handed catches mitt at any golf shop. So while you can go to a desk and write, you can go to a golf club, get the first golf shop and get your, your club. You can go to any golf, uh, pro shop or sporting goods store and get a, a right-handed mitt uh, really quick. I'm driving around. And so while you're home you know, catching, playing catch with your son or daughter, I'm still driving around and you're asking me, why is it taking me so long? Because you don't have the experience of being left-handed. It's called right privilege. Take out the word privilege and put in the word advantage. I was, I was talking to a lady uh, who lives here in San Diego. She lives in a neighborhood where there was protests and, and riots. And it dawned on her for the first time that she was faced with racism involuntarily. And she said, all my life, I've had a choice to not be around certain people. And that is a privilege. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to deal with it. And, and so, but people of color are always the minority and always around uh, diverse situations and always the other. And so it's really, if you look at it as you have an advantage now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're racist unless you think that the advantage you have uh, makes you better. Yeah. And so all of us have an advantage over someone, but it's really not a white thing or a black thing. It's a predominant culture thing. In Africa, you have racism, uh, is tribal. Matter of fact, the definition of racism is when you see someone as less than you. But we do that because of color. We do that because of tribe. We do that because of caste in India. So we find all these reasons to make people less than, and it's determined by the predominant culture. And so if you're in the predominant culture, you're around people who are like you all the time, you, you're, you're, you're comfortable with all these people all the time, you're not the other, that is an advantage or a privilege. But let me take that one step further, Miles. Our experience at Exponential over this past month or two is we're really trying to engage in the conversation here. Um, the, the words white privilege, even just privilege without white, is so hard for people. I mean, it, it just, it's that having a tooth pulled without the Novocaine. Interestingly enough, I have many friends, people of color, who are saying, Todd, don't use privilege, use advantage instead. Use the word advantage instead, like what you've just done. But here's the question. For people of color, what, what do you hope comes of conversations on advantage? Like what's the play the conversations forward about advantage? How, how, what's the prayer that's answered for you if white people embrace the conversation about advantage? What does it play to that's a win? That's a, that's a great, I'll try to answer. I've never been asked that question. I answered maybe two ways. One, the goal of all of this is just respect. I mean, you know, when I talked about um, respect, love, when I talked about the whole goal of the book is to honor what we have in common and what we all have in common, what black people, minorities want is respect. Just respect me as just as much human as you. 
Don't tell me that I'm making this up. Don't tell me, someone asked me the other day, tell me a recent offense, racial offense that you had. And I said, being told that I'm making this up. <laughs> I mean, being told is my imagination. Being told is not that bad. And, and so I think uh, the, the goal is, it's not to, you know, people talk about privilege, it's not to make you feel bad, it's to help you understand that your perspective is from up here. My perspective is from down here. My, my you know, I was, I was talking to a lady, a lady on a plane, and, and she was like, well, you know, racism is this, and we all had the same opportunity, I don't know why you're complaining, and, and, you know, you guys just need to work harder. And I said, well, I said, have you ever had to be concerned that being white would negatively impact your ability to get a loan? And she said, why? Of course not, right? But being black does. Have you, I said, have you ever uh, um, uh, had to be concerned that you couldn't live anywhere you want, that you could buy a house anywhere? Have you ever been concerned that being white would prevent a real estate agent by selling you a house? And she thought I was like asking these dumb questions. My sister tried to buy a house in Maryland and the, the real estate agent told her, I'm not supposed to sell you houses in this neighborhood. So when you, it's really to understand that when someone says I had a harder time or I got discriminated against, if you don't understand the advantage that you have, you think all those reasons are made up. You know, I had a guy, I was on, on, a, on a call with a football, NFL football team three weeks ago. We were doing a book club on my book. And one of the staff members said he had just went to buy a house that week. And the first thing the lady said then when he got out of his car with his kids, are you Section 8? Now, for all of you who don't know what Section 8 is, which is, is, which is a thing, it's, it's welfare. Well, you don't buy houses with Section 8. So not only did she not know what she was talking about, but she assumed just because he was black, he was welfare. He works for this NFL team. And so when you don't have to deal with that stuff all the time, and he's now he's got to think, do I have to explain this to my kids? When you don't deal with that, you'll hear things on the news about stuff, people complaining about things or saying this happened, and you won't believe it because you didn't experience it. So I think helping people understand that there's two worlds. I'll give you one more quick example. I met a lady in Hawaii. My wife went on vacation. She was white, and she had two black kids. And I said to her, she adopted, I said, how's it going? Because <laughs> I knew that having those black kids was a very different experience. And she said to me, I never knew the racism in my family and in my neighborhood until I got these kids. And so if someone had told her this racism, she would say, well, because I don't experience it, you're making it up. But it wasn't until she got those kids that she realized, wow, all that stuff is real. So I think it's, it's not to pull people down, it's to help people that understand there's a whole other perspective that's very real. And even in some of the responses that are well-meaning are, are, are a sign of being blind to it. I, I think, thank you, Miles. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, one quick thing, Grant. I think just last kind of thing on the advantage piece. Um, from exponential, you know, we're all about church planting and multiplication. So we often think through a missionary mindset of how do we get into new places sort of thing. What, what I'm finding, Miles, is if I put on a missionary hat for a second, and let's say that a person of color is going to try to be a missionary to me as a white person on this racial conversation, okay? And then let me flip it the other way. I'm a white person to be a missionary to a person of color. Here's what's interesting. Um, the, the person of color who wants to be a missionary to me, if they're truly being a missionary, they're not going to start off with the fighting words of white supremacy and at white privilege and stuff. They're, they're, the, a lot of the things you're talking about are the posture going to be there. But here's the flip side. If, if I'm a white person as a missionary to a person of color, the last thing I'm going to do is put up my barrier and say, that's a bunch of baloney. That doesn't exist. What are you talking about? And so the challenge I think we've got right now is from both directions. If our goal is a relational context to be connected, then somehow there's got to be a seeing through that lens on even words like advantage and privilege that, you know, I can acknowledge, yes, it's real, but let's be really careful about how we engage it. So I think – all white people and all black people 
don't think and have the same experience and perspective. So I'll, I'm going to say something that's general, but it's all black people don't think alike and all white people don't think alike. However, when people are missionaries to each other, um, it's important to understand your social narrative. Social narrative is a story that helps shape how you see the world. What have you been told growing up? Who, when you were growing up, you were told who's safe, who's not safe, who's smart, who's not smart, who to trust, who not to trust. You were told that. It's a perspective, but it's not the perspective. It has to be added to. And so when we go to people, we have to understand what do I believe and what is my perspective? And I have to be honest with myself, knowing that everybody's different. And so, so with that said, white people in general, again, I'm not generalizing, see the world from a predominant culture perspective. Minorities see the world from a minority culture perspective. Whites have a, the emotions that are associated with being the majority predominant culture. Blacks or minorities have the, the perspective and pain of being from the minority culture. We, we don't really necessarily understand the emotions we bring to it and the perspectives, but we definitely have to understand ours and then begin to understand theirs. And so it's one thing to say, you need to do what I need to do. However, you just need to make sure you do what you do. And I got to make sure I do what I do, but I see it from a very different perspective. And, and the reason I say that is because blacks are bringing to the conversation a lot of pain and a lot of weariness and a lot of, we said this before, my grandfather said it before, my grandfather said it, my grandparents couldn't get married, they had to go to a different state. Your grandparents know nothing about that. My father came from the military being called an N-word. Your father came from the, from the war being called a hero. And so we come to the conversation with very different perspectives. And so it's not that we have to do the same thing it, it, the same way. We have to submit to God, but it's very different. And, and the reason I say that is because sometimes we can say, this is what you need to do when we don't know the motions we bring to it. Now, surrendering to Christ, yes. But what that looks like is very different. Miles, uh, I'll ask you a quick question. And I just wanted to open up also for everyone watching. If you guys want to ask questions of Miles, just uh, give us a couple. We're going to be able to filter some through. But uh, Miles, the last question, at least for me, is uh, what is the hardest part for you personally about having uh, race conversations? The hardest part is, uh, I think it's probably something you said in the very beginning, is saying the same. It's trying to convince people the house is burning. Yeah. You know, trying to convince people that it's real, trying to convince people, trying to have a conversation versus with people who are willing to learn and, and learn versus be defensive. Uh, so probably the hardest thing is being patient through that and loving through that uh, because that is, that, that's frustration, frustrating. Um, and so just being humble through it and being a learner. So we're going to jump into – uh, the Q&A questions, Miles. So Grant and I will, uh, you know, take the questions from the audience and just pass them on to you. Um, I'm going to do my best at this question and try to paraphrase it. Um, it. When you've got this idea of on one hand, you're trying to balance relationship and, and you know, sort of that listening to the other person but you come into the conversation with a goal of something you feel strongly about. Do, do you have to balance those two 50, 50 or can, can you, can you come into it passionate? We'll say 70, 80% on the passion <laughs> side. And, you know, how do you balance? That's the question. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I would tell you, I, I don't know the person asking the question, you know, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. <laughs> You may be passionate about something, but the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And I've never met a person, even the ones, the person speaking to you right now, that has a 100% complete, correct perspective on anything. I don't even understand my wife after 40 years. And so the reason I say that is that if you come in with a very strong perspective on something, you have to come into it being willing to learn and being willing to uh, have your idea expanded and your perspective expanded. Think about how prideful this is. I know what's right, and, and I come in, and I'm going to prove it to you. That is, that's not the, 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 the attitude to come into the conversation. It's to come and say, look, I have an idea about this, and I would love to get your perspective. How honoring is that? Now, they may not change your perspective, 
but truth is more about is it's much more than information it's about relationship it's about perspective because you could even believe you know in standing for the national anthem great con controversial issue you may believe that you're supposed to stand for the national anthem and you go into it very strong and you talk to somebody and they give you a perspective that's wow i never thought about that but you're still convinced to stand but you have a new respect for the people who kneel. That's a great place to be because now you can love them more uh, patiently in the future because they're not necessarily, uh, you're not necessarily diametrically opposed to every single person. You now understand their perspective better. Miles, we got another question from the audience. Uh, the question is, is it wrong to have a goal of convincing white people that racism is real? Is it wrong to have a goal to explain, to convince white people that racism is real? Yeah, that was the question. Uh, I mean, I think the ultimate goal should always be to have a loving relationship. In that process, that has to be the ultimate goal because someone may, um, my, my, my sister was doing interior design of somebody's house and the lady called her a, a very nice negress. Now, <laughs> her goal can be to convince that lady that that's wrong, but really the bigger goal is to have that lady, if, if she had ongoing relationship with her, she, I don't think she ever saw her again after that, but in the relationship, that lady's thing and that was wrong doesn't solve the problem because the or, or get the goal the goal is that we have a loving relationship yeah. uh, because i can i can think yeah racism is wrong but i just don't want to I, I i don't want to be around you still it's wrong but i'm still going to do it you know smoking weed was wrong i did it for eight years and so it's more uh can you can you is your goal need to your goal needs to be to have a loving relationship and, and be respected as a human being that's really the goal and you can get there by just having a loving relationship Every time you have a conversation, you're having a race conversation. If someone has 20 encounters with me and we talk about football, we talk about church, we talk about God, and we never bring up race, they're having a race conversation because in their head they're going, man, this black guy's really nice. Man, he's really this. He's really that. He's really that. They're having a race conversation and you never brought up race. And then the next thing you know, they go, you know what? Can you help me understand this? Because they trust you now. Yeah, yeah. And so the goal is really a relationship. It's powerful. It's so true. We've got another question, Miles. How does equitable outcomes among races work into a goal for talking about advantage? As, you mean uh, uh, um, income equity? Uh, I, I think it's just the general idea of equity among races. So equality among races. How does equality work into the goal of talking about advantage? Yeah. The us first them mentality is that if you have this, I need to have this. And there's no perfect formula in, in, that I know of. And again, I'm, I'm still learning, but there's no perfect formula for things to be fair because life's not fair. I mean, I had a dad and a mom and my, and 70% of my guys I hung out with when I was growing up did not. Right. And so I can't fix that, but I can lend my dad. Right, which I did. And so putting guidelines in to ensure people have equal opportunity is absolutely a good thing to do. Whether that plays out in the end is a difficult thing to measure because there's so many other factors in it. And sometimes we can look at the end result and say that person didn't have a fair shot when maybe they did or maybe they didn't. Maybe they squandered it. And so it's, it's, it is a biblical thing to do to love everybody as you would want to be loved and give people the opportunity that you would want to have how it ends up in the end is tricky to guide and ensure that it happens so i, I think it, it is something to do and putting guidelines in to make sure people have opportunity is necessary um, uh, because you can put in uh, you can trust people but they're going to defer to people who are like them and so those things are necessary, 
Um, but it's it's such an imperfect. What's if everybody loved each other, then all of those things happen. And that's really what, as believers, we have to trust that the Spirit of God is going to do that, which is a, t- a tall order, and it's, and it's a God order. Yeah. One of the questions here is, um, how can we have a conversation that discusses for learning, but stays out of the political weeds? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I did a uh, survey. We had a 1,000 people give response to what makes race conversations difficult. And the number one thing was politics. Um, I, I would not bring politics into race. Politics is the one of the probably most divisive topics. I, I wouldn't do it. And once you do politics, remember us first them, if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, you can never agree with the other side. So once you do that, you're in the water with the alligator, conversation's over. Now you're just fighting. And so I wouldn't, I, again, it goes back to, are we trying to develop a relationship or am I trying to get you to be on my political party? Those are two completely different things. They will, I, I don't say never, I would never do that. Once that happens, the conversation's over. Yeah. Can I ask you this as just follow? Cause I mean, I, you keep coming, if there's one word that's been highlighted, it's relationship. Oh, do you not just sometimes feel like, come on y'all, it's just not, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. People, um, there's a term that, that's probably an, as volatile as um, privilege. It's fragility. And yeah. there's an uncomfortableness with whites to talk about race. And here's why. Well, one of the reasons why. People of color deal with racism from birth. From birth. And, and we're always at the brunt end of it. White people have a choice to deal with it. And so now that it's kind of being forced on you, it is uncomfortable. I get it. And, it, and it's a reality. Um, and you, if, if, as a believer, if, if you're a believer watching this and you really want to honor Jesus, and, and all of us, we have to say, okay, what is really going on in me? And not use an excuse. I know, you know, some people right now are using the Black Lives Matter organization as an excuse to not engage in the conversation. That is a very, that's a cop out. It ain't going to fly with God. God is about justice. God is about equity. God is about loving everybody the same. And for all these years, it was easy to say, I'm over here, you're over here, and I'm good. I'm going to church with my people. You go to church with your people. But that breaks God's heart. So what he's doing now is stirring people up. And I think that we have to be in tune with what we feel so we can really have honest conversations. Miles, we'll, we'll start winding down here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I'm gonna again, paraphrase one of our questions as best I, I can. Um, there's, there are secular paths toward unity where people pursue unity through maybe secular means. And then there's a biblical path to unity that, that we see laid out. If, if you were comparing and contrasting sort of secular path to unity, biblical path to unity, and where they positively overlap and where they're different, how, how would you just bottom line characterize sort of the, the secular path to pursuing unity versus a biblical path to unity? Well, wow, that's, that's, that's a deep question. Um, they, they both work together. You know, uh, trusting that people are going to love you is, that's a faith thing. And, it, you know, it hasn't worked. I mean, the whole civil rights movement was to put laws in place because people, you know, they're going to they're favor themselves. Obviously, if we're believers in the kingdom of God, uh, if, if we perfectly love people, then it's problem solved. Obviously, we can't do that. We can't even love people in our own family. And so they're both necessary. The problem, the problem, the difference is the secular path doesn't change your heart. Uh, the, the, the biblical path is it theoretically changes people's hearts. Um, but I think this issue is so deeply seeped into our culture, DNA, that even the Holy Spirit is having a hard time breaking through our hearts. So secular doesn't deal with hearts. It deals with systems. It's necessary. The, the spiritual deals with the heart. And that's where true change will come. Because if your heart's not changed, you're just going to put some laws in place that have loopholes. 
and 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 that that's what we've been dealing with. Yeah. Uh, one last question for me, and then Todd, I'm gonna let him kind of close this out. But uh, you know, when we talk about race, it often can be like, oh, that's going to be hard, or there's a lot of landmines, and and I, I'm sad sometimes we make it like it's it's going to take so much work. Um, but I, I love seeing you talk about the wedding analogy and just uh, you getting together. There's so much like beauty. There's so much gifts. There's so many benefits of it. If if we'll do the hard work uh, of the the conversations or really build the relationships, can you talk about like what do we lose if we somehow couldn't like wave a wand and we just we've been managing division for a long time. Yeah. God's forcing us to have these. But what do we lose if we could go back? Like where what do we lose and what do we gain though um, by getting on the other side of this? We gain. Uh, well, if you're in business, it's, it, stats prove that your business will do better if you have a diverse staff. Yeah. Your committees will do better if you have a diverse committee. Uh, number two, I know we say it's hard, but it's only hard if we're prideful. If we are humble, yeah, you may learn things about yourself you don't like, but we do that every day. But if you're humble and you're not going into have to be right, then it's like, I want to learn and, and I'm going to grow and I'm going to meet people that are amazing. I will tell you this. People are awesome. God made incredible creatures when he made humans. Yeah. He made all of them in his image. So if you're avoiding black people, rich white people, poor white people, Asians, you're missing out on some cool people. <laughs> and to, you know, that, that's, that's unfortunate. I had an unfortunate, if you play sports, I'm glad you brought up the football things. And all those movies you mentioned in the beginning, most of them were football because football is the greatest sport. That's another story. <laughs> but when you go to a football team, you meet all these people from around the country and they're awesome. So you're just missing out on some really cool people. And I would tell you, all of you out there, there are people, there are, the, there are types of people that you see on TV that you may have been told are bad. They're really not. I, I say they're really not. If you got to meet some of them, some of them are bad, obviously. But some of them are, re, you know, they're, they're really real people, real pain. I ministered to a kid in the, in the in Judah Hall as white supremacist. He cursed me out the first time. I went back and he got saved. You have to work through the, the rejection. If you have a humble heart, God can do an amazing thing in your relationships. Thank you, Miles. Seriously, thank you. Miles, one last question that's come in that I, I, I hear it in different forms quite a bit, so I just want to cover one last question before we finish up. Um, the, the, the idea of equity and justice and, you know, to what end in this conversation in terms of the differences in equity and justice. And so the question points at the parable of the talents where the person said, where in the Bible does the God say about equity? And then what about the parable of the talents? So I think what's at the core of the question is you've got three different people who, in terms of what the world might call equity, get different responses, but yet justice is there. The, the five-talent person is getting what's just for them. The one-talent person is getting what's just for them. So I think the question here is probably leading to the to what end. What, what is it that we're looking toward on the outcome? You know, if, if you want to put it in these terms, what's it look like to fulfill and finish the civil rights movement kind of thing. Like what, yeah, what is the outcome? There's a, there's a thing called just world bias. Just world bias says that everybody already has a fair shot and an equal shot. And so if, if you're poor, that's your problem. There is no system that disadvantaged you. In the talent situation, I'm glad you brought that up. Jesus gave each one of those different abilities, but he gave them the equal opportunity to invest. And so this is not about me having less ability. This is about me having opportunity to invest in my ability. So I'm glad he brought that up. And so the question for you, whoever it is, is do you, do you believe that people of color have the same opportunity to, do you believe that people of color have the same opportunity to have business. I mean, was, I grew up in Long Island, New York, and there was a town called Levittown. It was the first suburb in Long Island. And when they developed this suburb, in the, in the bank said we will only lend money for these houses only for white people. If you were black, you couldn't go, you couldn't buy a house, you couldn't rent a house. 
So all those white people bought those houses and they got generational wealth. That's just a fact. And so if I have money and you have money, Parable of Talent says we can both go and invest in the same land. So the equity is that gives me that opportunity. It doesn't have to do with the talent I have. And so the goal is that you give every young child the same opportunity that every other child. That When I look on TV, I see people like me that give me, I can do it. Not everybody that is successful doesn't look like me, but everybody that looks like me is second class. That would be the difference. Thanks for answering that question. Great question. No, that's great. Miles, thank you so much for being with us. This has uh, been really good. I want to encourage people in your chat. You have seen uh, uh, milesmcpherson.com. Miles, you don't want to miss this book, The Third Option, uh, the course that's come out. Uh, much of what we're talking about here, very practically, you can engage with videos from Miles and, and uh, just material. So I want to encourage our uh, people tuning in to go visit the website and check out those resources. So uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll be on again next week to continue the conversations. Grant, good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Love all y'all. Thank you. And Miles, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. And it's called the Third Option Similarity Training. So go get that course. It's awesome. Thank you for listening to this Exponential Podcast recorded in our online community. We hope you enjoyed the content. In the fall of 2020, along with our community online daily content like you just listened to, Exponential is hosting roundtable events across the country and building a leader kit with over 100 plus resources. All of this is to help you engage in a healthy conversation for kingdom collaboration, diversity, and unity to advance church multiplication in your city. Visit multiplication.org for more.